I heard somebody say it's been a few weeks. We've, we've taken, a, taken a few weeks off for, uh, for the holidays, and so um, this is the fourth week of this class on regeneration, um, and the chapter title is Salvation is Deeper Than We Can Imagine. But because we've taken a few weeks off, I thought we'd spend a, decent, a little bit of time, a little bit less time, um, talking about uh, what we've gone over so far. Um, so in essence, this, this study is the, uh, a study on salvation. Um, and we talked about, in the intro of the first session, uh, we talked about the two main components of salvation. What are those components that we talked about? Now we're going back a month or so. So the two main components that we, we talked about was this idea of justification, that our salvation provides justification, but then we also get this regeneration. So justification is a once-for-all declaration that we're righteous before God because of what Christ has done for us. And that's kind of an external reality. So God has ruled us uh, justified because of Christ's work. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. Uh, he sees Christ and what Christ has done for us. That's justification. But salvation also includes this idea of regeneration, this this um, imparting of new life. So God doesn't just have an external component to our salvation, this justification, but he also has an internal component, a personal component. He comes and changes our hearts. So in that first session, we looked at Ezekiel. We talked about this idea of this heart transplant, taking out our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, a living heart, so death to life. And we'll talk more about that this week. Um, we then went and talked about who, we talked about what regeneration is, and then who does this regenerating work, who does this salvation. Um, both parts of salvation, justification and regeneration. We say that God does all of that work. So that work from start to finish is God's work. And we are passive recipients of uh, this action by God. So we talked a little bit about this idea of monergism versus synergism, and we kind of compared and contrasted uh, different um, uh, religious thoughts uh, about monergism versus synergism, um, and we kind of said we would fall in the camp of monergism, that start to finish God does all the salvific work. Uh, he credits us with righteousness by grace. He gives us a new heart an ability to respond positively to the gospel, and he indwells us with his spirit. So that's what God does. And then we talked about who, is, who gets this salvation, who gets this regeneration. And we, say, we said that God has effectually called his people. So we talked about this general call of the gospel that we call all people to, res, to respond um, to the gospel and believe but there's an effectual calling that we <clears throat> tie to this idea of monergism. And uh, we, we talked about this effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace. This is from Westminster question 67, shorter catechism, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills so that they, although in themselves dead to sin, are hereby made willing and able to freely answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered 
and conveyed therein. Um, and so we receive this um, by faith alone. That was kind of some of the summary. So we then talked about why do we, why are we wanting to study this? Why is it important for us to study mm-hmm. this idea of regeneration, this idea of, of, of what specifically happens to us in our salvation? And we talked, we, we talked especially in that first week of looking back in church history and saying we've gotten it wrong a lot. This is something that we need to continue to remind us ourselves of because we've gotten it wrong. Um, from very early in church history, um, we've fallen off the ditch, uh, fallen off the ditch of uh, thinking that we save ourselves, um, and so we we need this uh, reminder, constant reminder, um, because we forget. Um, we also talked about this idea of being reminded uh, to to think about both our justification and regeneration. Sometimes we can get way too focused on this justification thing, this external thing, this judicial component of our salvation, and we forget that God didn't just justify us. He also changed us internally to live lives of holiness, to give him glory. And so this this idea that justification and regeneration should be both be emphasized the same amount and not one more than the other. Um, and, uh, we talked about this idea that regeneration starts this process of sanctification, this idea that we are being sanctified over the course of our life. This regeneration that happens is makes, makes sanctification possible without a heart transplant, without God supernaturally intervening in our very existence and our very lives, we can't pursue sanctification. And so we, this regeneration precedes sanctification, and so it's important. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so the first two weeks, week one and week two, were focused on John 3, this, the, the passage that where Jesus and Nicodemus um, meet in, in secret, and they talk about, and, and Jesus rolls out this idea, the most explicit teaching of this idea of regeneration, this being born again. So we, it's talked about in a few different ways. Um, so we talked about the necessity of the new birth in week one. We talked about what the new birth is in week two. And then <clears throat> the third week and then this week are focused on Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so Devin taught, I guess, three weeks ago um, on Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And the idea of the need for regeneration is is deeper, is greater than we can imagine. So outside of Christ, um, we are spiritually dead, we walk rebelliously, we're enslaved, and we're subjects or objects of condemnation and wrath. And so that's uh, Ephesians 2. So I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and then we're going to focus this week on 4 through 10. Um, So we're going to focus on on the second part. So... um, Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. <clears throat> so, um, Paul, this is a very famous uh, passage, obviously, um, and we've done... A, a whole uh, Sunday school on Ephesians. Um, and so I refer you back to that. Um, but in this passage, Paul is laying out this idea of what salvation means to us. And I would say, I mean, I wouldn't be the only one that says this, but Paul is really focused more on the regeneration component of salvation. If you want to read more about justification, you can um, pick up Romans. Romans is much more focused on this judicial um, uh, counting us as righteous. Uh, and so his treaty, uh, our treatise on this idea of justification is much more profoundly laid out in Romans. But here we have a much more focused, um, at, uh, Paul is much more focused on the regeneration aspect of our salvation. And so he talks about, first, he starts with Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he lays out where we are outside of God's intervention. And he says, you're spiritually dead, not sick, but you're dead, like all the way dead, under the ground dead, bottom of the ocean, dead, you're dead. So you're spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins and sins. You're walking rebelliously. Uh, you once walked in this way. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the, the Satan. Um, and you were spiritually enslaved. And then in three, it says you were by nature children of wrath. So God's disposition towards us outside of this salvation is condemnation and wrath. But that, but that's not where Paul stops. He has like one of the biggest butts in the Bible, right? He does this from time to time. He he does this really sharp contrast. In fact, he does it uh, in the rest of Ephesians two, where he says in thirteen, "But now." So Ephesians two is first talking personally about each of us and what we were before God intervened. And then what we have become um, after God intervenes. And then in the second part of um, chapter 2 and 11 through 22, he's talking more about like what our relationships look like now. You were this way, but now, in verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you were far off and you've been brought near. So, but God. So God has said... Here's here Paul is saying, here's here's your your disposition, here's who you are. And he says, but God, there's an intervention here. 
God, but God, being rich in mercy, um, saved us. So we'll kind of walk through some of this. Um, I was reading a couple of commenta- commentaries on to uh, one of my favorite ones is John Stott. He does a really good, very pastoral, very easy to read. It's not he gets into some of the Greek words, but it's really just to kind of drive home a point. Um, and he has a lot of he does a lot of like. <laughs> Um, making analogies. And he said that one of the, um, that some commentators that he's referred to in his commentary say that verses four through 10 is almost a hymn of celebration of the glories of salvation and this idea of sola gratia, this idea of grace alone. And so he talks about this. It's almost like he, Paul is singing this to us. You were down here, but God and then he did, and then he, and then he lays out this kind of treaty on salvation and what God has done and how, why. So, in Ephesians two four through seven, we have this but God, and then we have what God has done and why God has done it. So Paul answers what Paul t- answers our questions of, okay, here's where we were, but God. So what did God do? He, he jumped in in verse four. What did God do and why has God done it? Um, and then I guess a third question is, who has he done this to? So what God has done, why God has done it, and then who is the recipient of this action? So God has saved us from the state that Paul describes in verses one through three totally reversed. So Paul does this, he does this compare and contrast, and it's like dead to alive, sinful to righteous, children of wrath, children of of love, like God has lavished his grace and love on us. So we're not condemned and we're not under God's wrath. We're now under God's love and care and grace. So these big contrasts. So um, the three main actions um, I thought this was really good, and Stott gets the credit for this, not me. So go to, yeah, he gets the credit. Um, he says these three actions that God does, in ver- that he's describing in verses 4 through 7, are connecting us to Christ in a, in a very intimate way. So God resurrected Christ. So Christ was resurrected, he ascended, and then he's seated at the right hand. That's, that's, that's what Christ, that's what happened to Christ. Christ, I mean, not happened. He's part of the Godhead, right? But uh, the narrative is that Christ was resurrected. He ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father to judge. Um, and Paul here puts us in that seat. So in verse five, he says, even when we were dead, he made us alive. He resurrected us. Um, and then he raised us up with him in verse six, a raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So God is, or Paul is connecting the truths about Christ and he's saying you're in Christ now. So you get all the benefits of being in Christ, not just this judicial pronouncement about your sin and righteousness, but also you're in Christ and you are resurrected from death to life and you are um, 
raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places because you're in Christ. So it's much deeper, like the title of the chapter, it's much, this salvation is much deeper than just you're righteous because of what Christ has done. No, God is bringing us in to Christ. When we're in Christ, we get the, the, the benefits of being in Christ. Um, so Stott says, by virtue of their union with Christ, they have actually shared in his resurrection, ascension, and session. That's the seated at the right hand of God. So this is not just like worship, or this is not just like we're agreeing with what God says. Uh, it's not just agreeing with scriptures. It's not just living by a moral standard. What makes us Christ, Christians different is that we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. There's a there's a there's a sense in which there's this personal connection, and um, trying to think of the word, but there, it's more than just Christ did this for me externally. There's an there's a a personalness to what's gone going on. Thoughts thoughts on that so far. I'm good with awkward silence. Mm -hmm. I teach for a living, so. It's in the the whole Christ book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus, it's a package. It's it's not only believing Jesus died for me. It's him and in him, everything. Yeah. It's very deep. It's deep. It's not just something to uh, intellectually assent to. This is, this engulfs us for lack of a better term so we talked about what god does he saves us but he doesn't just save us he um he brings us from death to life he seats us in the heavenly places um but why does why does god do this so we get some really good um explanations here what prompted god to act is not something that he saw in us and it's not something that we did first. So what God did is he saved us, but why he did it, we would say, and this would, this would put us in uh, opposition to some folks who would say, well, God looked down the quarter of time and he saw that I would have faith. And so that's why he acted. Or that would be kind of a synergistic versus monergistic approach. So synergistic, like, I participated in this. And Paul, he already knew, right? He, he knows that the Spirit's leading Paul. He knows what we're going to do. We're going to try to take credit for stuff that's not ours, right? We do this in all kinds of things. Someone, someone uh, I had a, a plumber come yesterday to the house, and uh, he, um, he, mistook, he mistook me for someone else, I guess, in the neighborhood that he had come to before. And uh, he just, he's like, man, uh, thank you for that cigar you gave me last time I was here. And I was like, what, what's, what, uh, (laughs) but I was tempted to be like, oh yeah, you're welcome. That's great. But you know, I wanted to take credit for someone else giving this guy a gift. Just, that's just from yesterday. Just a, we like to take credit for it. And Paul knows this and he's going to say, wait a minute, just in case you want to take credit for it, um, no, you're not going to take credit for it. We're going to make sure that, that there's clarity here. 
But why, why does God do it? We have four reasons or four things. God says he's rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Um, he gave us grace and kindness. So God's four reasons for saving us are because of his mercy, his grace, his love, and his kindness. We see that in four, five, six, uh, seven, and eight. We see that, those four things. <clears throat> Another commentator says, so it's clear that God does what he does because he loves us. This love is not just available it's abundantly available. We see that in five or four. Great love with which he loved us. His love for us is great. In the same way, his mercy is also abundant. Abundant. God does not stingily dispense mercy with a teaspoon. Because we are greatly loved, a multitude of sins are forgiven and covered by his mercy. So this idea that God is not just tiptoeing towards us. And given us a little bit of his love or a little bit of his mercy. No, this is this is language of abundance. He's great love towards us. It's not just a little bit of love. It's great love. And it has to be because of what he's doing. He's, he's literally rescuing us from death and condemnation and wrath. And put it, making us, putting us in Christ and giving us new life. Um... So we can be living evidences of his kindness. And so the reason why we are so we are going to put our stake in the ground about this being all of God and none of us is primarily because if any of it is of us, then we become the focus of what's happened. And so we want to point to God and say, God saved us from start to finish. I didn't have anything to do with it. And if I had something to do with it, then that mercy, love, grace, and kindness is somehow weakened because he didn't really, he didn't have to, I, I was somehow a little bit lovable to him. I was somehow a little bit worthy of his mercy, of his grace, of his kindness. And we would say no, and Paul would say no, no. This is all of God. God is pouring out his mercy his love, his kindness, and his grace on us because he's a great God and because he loved us, because he set his affections on us, not because of anything that we did. And so that is beautiful. And so um, Stott talks about this idea of uh, someone painting a beautiful painting. Uh, He was talking about a guy that he was finishing his studies and um, one of the principals in his school was getting ready to retire. And so a painter came and painted this beautiful portrait of this guy. It was just expertly done. And Stott ties this back to the scripture to say, when you see a beautiful painting, you don't necessarily, you obviously know who it is. Your first question is not who, what is that? Who is that? But who did that? Who painted that picture? Who painted that painting so beautifully? And so what he's trying to get through in this is like this idea that we are, and in, in, in Ted it says it, we're his workmanship. So we're the reason why God did this. God did this for his own glory 
but it's because he wanted to pour out his mercy and love and kindness out to us. And then uh, the, the author of the, the book uh, talks about who God has done this to. And he ties it back to chapter one and this idea of election. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about election. Um, but he says, election is crucial for understanding the Bible's teaching on regeneration. Election is a joyful note in the cacophony of sin. God planned to intervene in our plight, sent his son to the cross for our sins, and draws to him those for whom Jesus shed his blood. Um, so election is God choosing his people and then acting to save them. And so uh, as we restart um, our sermon series on Deuteronomy, I did want to quote from Deuteronomy, not from today's passage, but uh, in Deuteronomy, at the towards the beginning, in Deuteronomy 7, um, uh, God is... Uh, Moses is, is talking about God's action to his people, to Israel. And he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, land, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to the thousand generations. So this, so hold these two, hold these two passages up and you see a lot of the same language. God is acting on his people in a very specific way, they were in slavery. We were in slavery to sin. They were hopeless. And now he has chosen them and lavished blessing on them. Just like in Ephesians 2, it talks about this idea of you were a slave to sin. You were an object of my condemnation and wrath. But I acted, God acted in space and time. And in, unlike a, a, a whole nation... God is now saving his people through this uh, process of regeneration. So this is God's action. And he also talks in Deuteronomy about this idea that they didn't, it's not because of anything that they had. They weren't large in number. They weren't a mighty, they were small and they actually didn't have anything desirable according to what the world would think is desirable. God chose to chose Israel just like he chooses us because of his great love for his people. And there's a mystery there, um, but it is part of what we talk about when we see. So this, this passage from four to seven, we see that God acts by saving us and connecting us to Christ by doing to us what, he, what, Christ, what Christ experienced, his resurrection, ascension, and session. He didn't do it because he saw something in us or he saw that we would choose to believe in his future, but wholly because of his mercy, his love, his grace, and his kindness. He does this for his chosen people, and this is why regeneration is something that we should reflect on is because it's so personal. 
so intimate. It goes to the very depths of who we are as people. God did not just justify us, but he regenerated us, and that is beautiful. Any thoughts as we, before we get to the last uh, few verses of verse two, of chapter 2? Uh, sorry, just 8 through 10. I need to do better about like trying to put questions in that are more prompting than just the awkward silence. Um, the last thing, uh, and this is a theme that we see, and we, saw, we see it in Deuteronomy, um, especially next week as we transition from this uh, in Deuteronomy, what God has done for his people to what's next. So God has done all this stuff. God is in, in Ephesians 2. We see here's where you were. Here's what God did. Here's why God did it. And here's who God did it to. Um, but Paul doesn't stop there. It always, so these truths, when they're right, we have to apply them, right? We have to apply the truths. So the truths don't stop with this. It would be great. This is amazing. This is an amazing truth that God has, has done this. Um, but we end uh, with... Another reminder, so 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, because we want to boast. And then chapter 10 is the application. We're his workmanship, and we're created for good works. So we're created for something. So this regeneration that occurs doesn't just stop this, 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 it's not a point in time where God changes our heart and then we're good and we just kind of float around in the world. No, he's given us a mission now. So we've got a mission. We're, we're, and he's going to enable us to do that too. So um, the focus is this fruit of God's intervention is now we live lives that are different than we would have lived without this so we are brought from death to life and that death to life by necessity is is something that continues so our lives on this side of heaven um, are different and we have eternal life that's promised to us because of again what God has done for 2nd Corinthians can someone read this 2nd Corinthians 5 uh, 16 through 18 just to kind of bring this idea home, because he just says good works here, but there's two a few other passages that really focus this in more. Did you say 16 through 18? Yeah, 16 through, the first part of 18. Uh, from now on, therefore, we, re, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Yeah. Awesome. So this is Paul talking to the Corinthians and saying, describing this same thing and saying, you're, there's, a, there's a new creation here. You were this way, and now you're a new creation. And that means, so it's tying this creation language back into um, how we're thinking about this. So... This gift of saving faith in uh, chapter 8 talks about 
salvation is all of grace from start to finish. And Paul is talking about what's happening. He's saying, for by by grace you have been saved through faith. So salvation is deliverance from death, slavery and wrath to, so we're being delivered from death to life. Grace is God's free and undeserved mercy towards us, or unmerited favor is another way to talk about grace. And then faith, faith is humble trust with which we receive the gift. And so, but Paul is really, Paul, this is really where Paul gets into this idea of making sure that we don't want, we don't take credit. Because that's some faith traditions, that's where they take credit. They say, well, you know, God saved me, but I produced the faith. You know, the faith came from me. I produced it. And then God took what I produced and did the rest of the work, right? This, this, we're, we're, we're collaborating with God here. And Paul says, he says, no, no, he has two negatives right here. He says, it's not your own doing. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. So we have been saved by grace through faith. And what is he talking about when he says it's not our own doing? He's talking about the faith. The faith is not our own doing. It's a gift. So not only is this regeneration, this salvation, a gift from God, but the faith that we express is also a gift from God as well. It's not our own doing. It's not from ourselves. It's a gift that was given to us. And so one commentator says, if I could find it, God gives us a present, and then he also gives us the hand that has the ability to receive the present. So he gives us both things. So he's giving us this present of salvation but we're not reaching out for it. He's also giving us a hand, the hand that we use, this, this, uh, this faith that we use to receive the gift. And that's clearly what Paul is talking about here. And just in case, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one can boast. So this is not works. This is all of God, all of grace, so that no one can boast. And then the last, um, the last verse is chapter 10, or verse 10, sorry. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So what does our salvation do for us? Is it just like a nice sentiment, just make us feel good? It should make us feel good. It should give us assurance and, uh, and peace. Um, because we have peace with God, but that's not why God saves us. God saves us so that we can do good works and give him glory. Again, look past ourselves and point to God. God has done all of this from start to finish. So when someone sees us do, doing good works, they should, we should not be like, I did this. I did this good work. We should be like, no, the only way that I could do anything good is because God saved me and God gave me the ability, just like he gave me the ability to have faith, he also gave me the ability to do good works. Yeah, I've, I've um, heard it said in kind of the marriage of faith and works, um, there's a phrase, faith works with works to produce a faith that works. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so yeah, we would, that that's another place where, we can see controversy. What, what's this relationship between faith and works, right? 
um, and this this uh, per- disagreement, like in Scripture, between James, what James is saying and what Paul is saying. And Paul is, he's he's pretty much saying the same thing. He's like, this salvation is productive. You don't get saved. Your God doesn't save you and then leave you. This idea, that's why this idea of regeneration is so beautiful and it should spur us on to worship and to good works because it, God does, God has given us a new heart, which comes with new desires and new abilities that we didn't have before to actually do good works. We couldn't do good works before God saved us because it was all about us. It was all about our sin. It was all about who, how we could glorify ourselves. But now we're talking about this idea that this salvation, this, this action that God does on us pushes us forward towards good works. We're his workmanship. We're his masterpiece is what some commentators have talked about. Um, and so we don't, we don't read Paul and read James and see disagreement there. Just from the practical perspective that they met and talked about it at the Council of Jerusalem, and they didn't have a disagreement. We didn't. We don't have any. So what Paul is talking about here is he's taking us from this horizontal or this vertical reality of what God has done for us, and then he's pointing us horizontal and say, okay, now this is what you should. This is how your life should be different because of what God has done, and that's what James is talking about. He's much more concerned in this horizontal, like. You should not see somebody that's truly been saved sinning, unrepentantly sinning over periods of time and not living life. This, the faith that God gives us, this regeneration that God gives us is active. It's working faith. It works out in our lives. And if it doesn't, then James is like, that, that's, this person might be in, he might be in what Paul calls this, the first three verses of chapter 2. He might be dead. He might not be alive. That faith, that faith that is given to us is a living faith. That heart transplant that God gives us is a stone to flesh. It's living. It's active. It's productive. It doesn't just sit. And so that's what we talk about when we talk about this idea of good works. Titus 2, 11 through 14 kind of extrapolates on what he's talking about. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that should define who we are. We're zealous to try to give God glory, to try to um, do what he says. We're, we're going to try to get rid of ungodliness and worldly passions, like Paul says in verse 2. But, so, there's a, so there's an element of this, this is ha- that God is doing this. But there's also an element in verse 10 of trust. So how do we know what the good works are? Well, God, it says God has already prepared them beforehand. So we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
again, another contrast. What, what happened? What's the beginning of the, ver- the chapter say? You walked in deadness and trespasses and sins, and now you're going to walk in good works. The walking away from God, the walking with God. So there's this element of trust that we don't have to be looking for things to do. God is going to provide opportunity for us to walk in this good work, these good works that he gives us. And he's given us wisdom to tell us what we should do, Titus. We should get rid of ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, and we should walk and strive to be pure in the way that we walk. Um, and so the last part of the chapter talks about this idea of grace forever. Again, this, this idea that this doesn't end. We don't, justification is this one point in time where God has just, has declared us righteous. And that's a truth that we can reflect on and savor because without that, we have no hope. But this idea of regeneration gives us ability to live different lives than we would have lived otherwise and to walk uh, forward in this world um, because of this fundamental change that God has done in us. Um, So he's not just shown us grace in the past. He has done that. But he continues to pour out his grace on us today and tomorrow and into eternity. The grace that he has poured, his mercy and love and grace and kindness that he poured out to us in this time, this point of regeneration was not a once and done thing. It was, it's something that he continues to pour out into his people. He's made us in Christ. And so we walk in newness of life because of what God has done for us. Any final thoughts? I think we stayed pretty much on time. You know, I noticed there's no age limit on mm. this. We walk yeah. in the works God has prepared us to do when we are young mm-hmm. believers and when we are old believers. There are always things that he sets before us by his grace to do. That is such a good point. I think sometimes we, you know, the commentate, both the commentators that I read both kind of talked about that, that idea of like, of trusting God to provide opportunities. And there's going to be seasons in life where doing good works means like, man, let me just read one catechism question to my kids while they're screaming and running around. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Or it means when you're older in life, leading Bible studies and and doing service. And so God has prepared, and he doesn't, he doesn't put age limits and he doesn't put hierarchies on the works. So the, the, the very, the very little things that we do uh, to the big things that get us that, you know, might be like preaching a sermon is just is the same good work as changing a diaper and caring for your children because God told us to, to care for our children just like he tells us to proclaim the word, right? Um, That's such an awesome point.
Anyone else have anything? All right. Well, I'm going to pray for us and we can head over to head down to worship. Father, these truths are so amazing. We're just so thankful um, that you have intervened in our lives, that you have lavished us with your love and mercy and grace and kindness. And it's not something that we deserved or we earned, but you gave it to us and you loved us so much to change our very nature and to bring us into relationship and closeness with Christ. And so we're so thankful for that. Father, be with us as we go to worship. Help us to have uh, open hearts um, and open ears uh, and that you would uh, be pleased with uh, our worship uh, to you today. And we thank you for all this. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.